players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Oath of Druids. Beseech the Mirror. Ponder. And many others battling head to head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy in the search for eternal, eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by Boshmerl on YouTube, Thraven University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 113 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Glory Pod Storm's Eternal Weekend. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. You're not going to want to miss this week's pre-show. It's, um, well, it's interesting and full of bathroom etiquette and other interesting things. I thought you were going to say full of shit, Phil, and you wouldn't have been It wrong. was full of shit. There was a lot of poo involved. A just brief glimpse into the advice we gave in the pre-show, because I believe this is important to the average listener. Wash your hands. After you use the bathroom, especially in public at a magic tournament where you're going to be shuffling cards and shaking hands. What is wrong with you? You sickos. We see you. We are judging you. You're not getting away with it and it's not okay. Stop. Wash your hands. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) if you want to know where that came from, you can join the membership or Patreon and you can join awesome new members like Kyle C, Buster Dash, Hat H, Camden. By the way, Camden, shout out on your Eternal Weekend Top 8. Good for you. And... Richard L, Noah E, Jack P, Justin, Stephen F, Kale M, Rado S. That was a lot of new subs this past week. Shout out to all of you. You're keeping us on the air, keeping us doing the thing. A friendly reminder, we are accepting new sponsorships. We've already got a couple lined up for 2024, but if you're looking to get your message out there to 10,000 plus listeners per episode, visit the eternalglorypodcast.com and contact us there. Thank you. All right. So unfortunately, for some personal reasons, I was not able to attend Eternal Weekend. But I kind of want to start here by asking, you know, why did you play what you played at Eternal Weekend? You know, both of you are talented magicians with a pretty wide range, but especially vintage where, you know, once you have the power and, you know, some dual lands, it's pretty easy to pivot deck to deck. Why'd you end up on what you ended up on? I'm going to pause real quick. Uh, Phil, you're bearing the lead a little bit. We talked about it in the pre-show, but we haven't told the people yet. If you didn't know, I, Bosch and Roll, top-aided Vintage Eternal Weekend, and Bryant of the Epic Storm, top-aided Legacy Eternal Weekend. Two of us showed up, we had two top-8s out of the group, and I also lost my Legacy winning in. We almost had three top-8s out of two competitors representing the pod. It was a great weekend for the Eternal Glory podcast. We showed up and we did the thing. It is nice to put our money where our mouth is and... We put our mouths out there every two weeks saying, you know, you should listen to us to etern- for eternal stuff. And guess what? We did it. We showed up at Eternal Weekend and, and spanked the thing. That's what we're 
that's what we're talking about today. We're breaking down the Eternal Weekend experience from Bryant and myself, both of them had great weekends. Quick note, I was no schlub in vintage either. I had a pretty decent vintage run, kind of punted the last round, but we'll get there. But I also did fairly well in vintage. Nice. Yeah, strong showings across both events from both of the competitors. Just hell yeah. Anyway, Phil, what was your question? Let's kind of go to deck selection as a, a starting point. And I guess let's start with vintage specifically. You know, why did you choose the decks that you chose? So I ended up playing sort of my own brew that ended up being similar to somebody else's deck. If you looked at the Eternal Weekend Europe decks, Mark Tobias, hopefully I pronounced their last name correctly, ended up playing a Lurus Paradoxical Underworld Breach deck. And I remember seeing it when it came out and maybe subconsciously it was in my head. But at the time I was testing uh, Esper Tinker, Grix's Tinker Breach, Devoted Underworld Breach decks, Doomsday Beseech the Mirror. I was testing all sorts of just blue combo. I noticed something in my testing, two major things. One, drawing your win condition was actively terrible, which is, I think, going to Brian's deck choice. It's not true there, which is one of the things that, you know, I found to be true about the format. So drawing Brain Freeze... Tendrils of Agony, Thassa's Oracle. In Vintage, where all the cards are such a high power level, you can't afford blanks in your deck. That was a big lesson I learned. The other thing is, if you're going to be reactive, you need your answers to align well against the format. So Pyroblast was really good in my head because it lined up against Lavinia well, which was going to be popular. Spell Pierce, Flusterstorm, Force of Negation. I found in my testing that I constantly had the wrong answer lining up against my opponents and i decided i'm going to be proactive i'm just going to play a combo deck i'm going to play four flusters from four force will and just jam a powerful spell down people's throat i tested doomsday again and it just felt underpowered besiege that deck just it, it does well in people's hands that aren't mine i'll say that but i could never get it to work so i asked myself well what if you could play lurus and tinker in the same deck and i arrived that paradoxical outcome was really good because you can play bobbles with your lures, bobbles with your mox opals. And I built a deck that only won using Time Vault Key plus Lurus or Time Vault Key plus uh, Urza Saga. I didn't need another win condition the whole event. It was so smooth. So win conditions stink. That's what I have to say. So I, I want to zoom in on something you just said. So you were talking about how like a lot of vintage decks have these various efficient pieces, you know, Pyroblast, Pierced, Fluster, Force of Will, Force of Negation, and you were just always finding that you were having the right one. So you decided that this was a time period where you did not want to have a diverse, slightly overlapping set of answers, but that just Flusterstorm was the best thing for you playing this format. Is, is, is that a fair read? Almost the opposite. I found that I always had the wrong answer. So I'd have Spell Pierce where a Flusterstorm would have been better, or I had Pyroblast against, you know, a, a Time Vault or something. Like, my answers just never seemed to go the way that I wanted. I was trying to be too reactive. I was trying to take the the control role as the combo player and of the podcast, and it just never really seemed to work for me. And then I brewed this Lurus Paradoxical Outcome deck, the first league 5-0, second league 4-1, uh, third league not so well. I went 2-3, but admittedly, I was so tired, I accidentally fatal pushed or uh, cast down my own in that league so take that league with a grain of salt for one the next one i mean the deck wasn't perfect but i was doing pretty well with it so are have you just given up on disruption and you're just like trying to go off repeatedly you know what what's your defensive angle it, or is there one i mean i had four force of will four fluster and a main deck force of negation like there was a lot of reaction in the deck but it was not as much as the other shells that i was testing because uh the breach variants and the tinker variants had three or four more pieces of reactive counter magic so i mean it was nine 
nine versus 13 or 14. Okay, got it. So it's it's more of a, a shaving to focus on other aspects of the deck. And if it sounds like rather than trying to play a slower game where you counter some of their spells and then you get your spells through, where sometimes you can't spell Pierce Lavinia and you can't Pyroblast a Time Vault, if you're the one with the lethal spell on the stack first, they're going to have to react to it with an instant where Force of Will and Flusterstorm always hit. Exactly. So it, it, it's about flipping the script and making them come to you where you're ready to fight what they might have rather than trying to figure out what they're going to show you. Brian is so smart and so <laughs> said that so eloquently. What a great guy. I try. That's why I do this for a living. So Brian, what did you play as the uh, top eight competitor? I played Atraxa Oath of Druids combo. This is a deck that has been near the top of the format for a month or two now uh, people really figured out the shell historically one of the issues with oath of druids combo is that sometimes you draw your monster and that sucks not only are the monsters like historically there's been like emrakul blightsteel colossus even hellkite overlord it condensed into Grizzlebrand for a while. And then Brian Kelly, when he won Eternal Weekend a few years ago, he solved it a different way where he made all of the Oath targets castable and he made it a Bomberman deck so you can Oath into your Oriox Salvagers and probably mill your Lotus on the way there. And then you just have Bomberman set up from one Oath trigger. And if you ever draw Salvagers, it's totally castable. It's just a four drop. People have done some creative and interesting things to try to solve the what if I draw my monster problem for years and Atraxa has just homogenized everything into this beautiful package where Atrax is a wonderful hit off of Oath. She refills your hand. She protects herself because you're probably going to hit one of your permission spells off of your look at 10. She has lifelink and vigilance. Nothing can attack through her. And if you're not attacking, she'll start gaining life anyway, like regardless of what your opponent's up to. And if she's in your hand, she's blue for Force of Will and Force of Negation. She's green for Force of Vigor. And your deck now plays four show-and-tells and a flash. Five ways to shove a Traxa into play from your hand. I have played a lot of lo- Oath. I played Kelly Oath a lot. I played Fenton Oath. I played Spice Oath. It, that's like going back like various eras of the Oath way it was built. This is the best Oath deck I've ever played. And it's not close that it's it's just so smooth it does so many things it also plays tinker for bolus citadel because you can afford to spend seven life to cast attracts off the top of your deck because she's going to protect herself off her draw 10 and then she's going to gain that life back and you can keep citadeling it just has all of the the layered pieces in it and so many cool plans and you just get to do so much you showed me a really sweet play this weekend that i didn't know you could do your opponent had a grafter's cage in play you milled you triggered the oath to mill to yourself to keep atraxa on top you then drew the atraxa and cast show and tell and i was like that is so sick like i didn't know you could do that so brian definitely schooled me uh with that lesson yeah there's there's two cool things that's one of them because Grafdigger's Cage doesn't say you can't try to put a creature into play. It just says it won't come there once you select it. Oath will still mill until it hits a creature. The creature will try to come into play, but it can't. And the only place left to put it is the top of your deck, which is where it is within the rules. And then you go to your draw step. And then you have a tracks in your hand. That's a line. And there's also this really cool thing that happens usually in the Oath Mirror, which you start to use the flavor text of Flash, where Flash is usually put a creature into play for two mana, it dies, and you get whatever value it provided. But there's this flavor text where you could pay the difference in the mana and keep the creature. So in the Oath Mirror, it usually gets really grindy because you can't Oath and you can't show and tell because you all have the same monsters and the same payoffs. And Flash becomes kind of... Flash and Oko are what those 
matchups are about and you're hitting land drops you're playing moxes at some point you end step flash and if your opponent is not savvy you just pay another five keep your atraxa and it's in their end step so you immediately load up on cards you attack their oko it's dead and now you can't lose like there's a lot of cool little tricks uh, within the deck which is also really important to me because historically the oath mirror has been fucking candy land just the worst magic imaginable but the current oath build with oko thief of crowns with thoughtsies in the sideboard you get a lot of play to the matchup that in the past has just sort of been like well we all have to board out all our win cons and then whatever happens happens uh, it, it's just really good and uh, i was very happy with the list i went 13 and 2 in my MTGO testing. I went 5 0, 5 0, and then 3 2. And the two losses were to mirror matches where they had some side or some mirror tech, but I didn't. And then I messaged Justin Gennari. I am actually level one. And I, he was actually already over in Europe. This was before Eternal Weekend Prague. And I messaged him and I was like, I think I want Thought Seasons in the 75. And he was like, LOL, I just added them last night. He actually wasn't going to tell me that, but I, I found it on my own and then he shared his list. So I cracked the code on my own. He found the right number and put them in the right place. And uh, between us, we had a really good plan for the Oath Mirror. I have not lost an Oath Mirror since then. I've played five or six of them and just beat everyone because our plan and situation is great. And Oath is just structurally advantaged against initiative, traditional shops, any bizarre deck and any Luris control deck because all of those decks have to put a creature into play to win. And if your opponent is triggering your oath without you having to give them spirits with Forbidden Orchard or Elk one of their things with Oko, like it just skips a whole step. And you can just at any point in the game spend two mana on Oath of Druids and it will get virtual card advantage of they can't cast any of these creatures till they deal with oath. And what you're worried about is fast combo. And the best deck in the format is Demir Luris, which beats fast combo. And you're good against Demir Luris. So you're good against the best deck. And the best deck is good against your bad matchup. And it's just this really nice little metagame pocket that Oath has cut out for itself right now. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I would agree with that being true. So I have become more and more impressed with Atraxa over time. Like originally I was really hot on that. Oh yeah, there, there's the Bryant faces. Here we go. Phil's been in the pocket of big Atraxa since day zero. Off the spoiler, he was like, sell your Grizzle Brands, you won't need them anymore. Um, I was really hot on it as a reanimator target and as a natural order target. And then over time, I've seen other uses from it that I really didn't foresee in other formats. CEDH Atraxa is a, is a thing that has been putting up some relatively large results. And here we see it as an Oath of Druids target. Card's good. There might still be other spaces that is worth exploring. If you can cheat a big creature into play or blink a big creature, food chain it to, uh, you know, repeatedly recast it. You know, there there are options out there. Atraxa was a huge part of her standard format as well, which might make more sense because standard games can bog down and like a seven drop is more reasonable to cast. But I was not in touch with standard at all, and I am still not in touch with standard at all. But I remember watching the first like paper return to regional pro tours, learning that Rakdos and four color reanimator were decks in standard where you like fable of the mirror breaker away your early Atraxas and you had some ways to reanimate them. And then eventually the treasure tokens from your fables will just cast the ones that are in your hands. And I was like, yeah, this rules. I might play standard if I knew that this was going on. All right. Any vintage related thoughts or should we move on to why you chose the legacy decks you did? Let's talk about some legacy. All right, Bryant, let's start with you. Tell us how you came to the Epic Storm version 69.420 for this uh, this event. Top 8, 69.420, by the way. Oh, oh, sorry. Exactly. Well, I was testing out 
my list that I was pretty happy with. And I eventually hit 72 uh, match win percentage over 100 matches, which is a pretty decent sample size. So I, I was like, okay, I know that I like this list now. Let's try solving some problems because I was winning at such a high clip. I'm like, really, the only thing I'm losing to is Moonstompy and Boros Initiative. So what if I cut the carpet of flowers from the sideboard and I add in two more uh, answers to Archon and Chalice? So that was my game plan. And I lost a little bit of percentage points versus Delver, but it was just a couple. But what I found was I did some dedicated testing and going up to six answers did not improve my match win percentage whatsoever. Uh, so I was like, oh, that's actually pretty interesting. I'm still losing at the same rate. I am not going to cut my carpets. I'm just going to keep them and make sure that I dominate Delver if I'm not going to be able to meaningfully improve those prison matchups. And I decided, hey, my plan is going to dodge those two Chalice of the Void decks the entire event and just accept the losses when I get them. So that was the game plan. And then the other thing I discovered during this testing was that I no longer liked Abrupt Decay. So Besaju is a card that I ended up really enjoying because versus Delver, it's a green land that casts Carpet of Flowers or cast Veil of Summer. Also, it's just good against Wasteland, right? I really like that there, but that was the card I was boarding in against blue decks, and then I found myself only boarding in Abrupt Decay versus non-blue, and I was like, well, if that's the case, I should just run Echoing Truth since I could answer multiple Chalices or multiple Archon of Amiria's, that sort of thing. And uh, Echoing Truth just really, really overperformed in my testing, so I was pretty happy with the list that I ended up running. Okay, so for some of our viewers at home, who, listeners at home, rather, who maybe don't know what you mean, what do you mean you did dedicated testing what what does that look like i found an expert of that deck and then i played 10 matches with them uh, i also continued my league play but i found someone who was really good and then just grinded games with them some sometimes you you just need to figure something out and you need to bash your head in a dedicated testing session against a, a deck and if you've never done that before you might learn some surprising things and you might even just change up the strategies that you're doing even after two or three games when someone else points something out exactly it we'll find that that was one of the bullet points when we talk about my deck selection as well a targeted testing set also is what got me where i ended up i might as well take this time to thank kulu limpa right now for hopping on magic online with me and just kicking my teeth in so thank you yeah they're they're one of the the regular like trophy leaders right correct all right, Brian, how about you? You had had some maybe rough patches with deck selection as far as the previous Eternal Weekend uh, overseas went. You were kind of open to deck ideas. How did you end up on what you ended up on? Two episodes ago, we talked about my misadventures at SCG Pittsburgh, where I went 5-0 in the Swiss with my four-color St. Catherine Beans deck that I was playing before uh, letting my tiredness and hunger overtake me and taking a draw that put myself in ninth and missing on that. And then in Prague, I just went 4-4. Four and four. And at that point, the sales from SCG Pit, where I was like, I can only lose to myself, were taken away because I could lose to opponents too, it turned out. Weird concept, but uh, it was confirmed. The issue that I ended up having with the Four Color St. Catherine Beans deck was that I can't test it on Magic Online. While that shell was powerful, spoiler, Triumph of St. Catherine did win Eternal Weekend, the Legacy event, uh, and it was good. I felt just a little tension. Should I have three Tundras, one Bayou, one Underground Sea, or uh, like two Sea? You know, should I play a Triome? If so, should it be Xander's Lounge? 
challenge or Zeotaurus proving ground. And there were just all these questions that I could not get the reps to answer without having the core card of the deck available to me on Magic Online. That deck in the first place was born out of Pokemoki's Sultai Beanstalk pile. I took his deck that he and I have been messaging about for feels like two months now, maybe a month and a half. Uh, he found that a long time ago. He's been working on it. He won an MTGO challenge with it. He's been putting up trophies and and really doing the work. And I just added colors and added St. Catherine's and that's how I got to my deck. And then it was my plan to default strip it back to basics. And if I didn't find anything else that, that got me going, I would just play the Pokemoki Saltai deck. I tried Tony Scaponi's PO deck, 5-0'd on my first league with that, and I was like, whoa, is this thing lightning in a bottle? And then I played a bunch more leagues and it kind of normalized out. I do still think that deck is good, but I could not get myself to a spot in the time that I had where I was confident between like, do I keep this seven card hand that has an Urza Saga and an Ancient Tomb, or do I try to chase a five card hand that has a turn one one ring like i that balancing that there's actually a lot of decisions and different gears that deck has and i could not get there for an 11 round tournament and i tried cephalid breakfast again because i always like having that one in the back pocket i was not impressed there either and i just ended up defaulting to the pokemoki list pokemoki and i did a targeted testing session we both recorded our sides of the match if anyone wants to go see that my sides on my channel his sides on his and we shared conversations after each match and we just ran saltite beans into five color beans for like three hours and he slaughtered me on the, the Sultai side. His Wastelands could just like clip me off of Leyline Binding or clip me off of actual spells. Like I couldn't escape my Uros because I was busy trying to also cast forth Aerolingus and Wasteland plus Witherbloom Command. And just the spread of one and two ofs in Pokemoki's deck was crazy. It was one Stifle, one Spell Pierce, two days, one Thoughtseize. And you can't play around that in those numbers. It's almost worse that you know that they're there. Because then you're like, oh, what if he's got the spell pierce here? And even though there's only one, if you play around days that there's only two copies of, then you're just time walking yourself for the entire match. But then if you don't play around days and he has it, it's a blowout. And then if you play around days, but don't play around spell pierce, you just took a turn off to get countered anyway. And it was just so miserable. I couldn't figure out whether I'm supposed to play like he always has all of them or play like he never has any of them. And I just could not win a match off him. And it was really inspiring because we were worried about the bigger bean decks going bigger than us. And it turned out that we were in the pocket to just collapse their whole engine. And and that did bear out in my eternal weekend as well. I played against five color beans and it was not close. That's how I ended up there. And the last thing that we were trying to figure out, much like Bryant, and how do I improve my Boros Initiative matchup? Because we were worried about that one. Vale is just very pleased with himself over there. He's like, yeah, I'm the best deck. Yeah, that deck was very good. Boros Initiative performed extremely well in both Europe and Asia. And it's just a great deck. And we were worried about it. The last two cards we changed in the list were we cut the fatal push from our sideboard and some other card we were playing for two dismembers and dismember makes it completely changes how bad turn one can actually be for you uh, when you're playing against the initiative it kills all of their initiative idiots it kills arcan of amiria it kills magus of the moon that mfr uh, I actually did have an opponent in eternal weekend on the play go pedal pedal cavern magus and I just dismembered it <laughs> And it felt so good. So that piece of tech was insane. And I don't know if we solved it or if I just ran well, but I played against initiative four times in the tournament. I beat it three. There is some, there's a, a bit of a cloud over the, the loss that I'll probably talk about later. Some weird stuff happened. So you mentioned uh, playing around different numbers of interaction, which is something that came up in the Storm Discord because one of the Grixis Delver lists from Europe happened to have a singleton molting collapse. And a bunch of people were like, am I supposed to play? 
play around this? And my answer was always, no, you don't play around a singleton molten collapse. As a permission spell, it's possible that changes, but I was just like, I would still always run out my carpets. Like if they have the, the lone molten collapse, you tip your cap and move on. I don't know. That was just my philosophy on that. Or you just veil it. You're a deck with four veil of summers. Just get them. Yeah. Yeah, I would not play around that. But but yeah, I didn't even mention that the two Witherbloom commands in our deck. So like in addition to all the one and two of permission spells there's also two witherbloom commands which are which offer conditional removal so the removal is two witherbloom command two fatal push two shoulders two murderous cut it's just the full uh, arnold palmer up in there and you're gonna get it one way or the other and you can't play around all of it and i thought that was just the numbers look weird on paper but i promise they're the result of a month or more of pokemoki just being in the lab about it and finding the exact right numbers of everything whenever i see a deck list and the numbers look really weird to me, I either think this person doesn't know exactly what they're doing, or this person is a genius. And a lot of times when you see a really weird deck list with a spread like this, this is someone like who has put in the work to really figure out what do I need to address the various matchups. And I, I think this dismember tech is incredible, like as a pilot of Boros Initiative and Moonstompy and all those decks, like having something that can get rid of Magus and also the larger creatures like Season Dungeoneer just for one mana no matter what is is brilliant. Right. And Another big thing about that matchup that in our on our route to solving it is we determined that you can't stop initiative. Your counter spells are largely ineffective and you only have the one stifle and it's better to kill everything that they play and have a bowmaster to poke and take the initiative and then you just keep the initiative. There was a spot in a game against initiative where my opponent put Caves of Chaos Adventure on the stack and my hand was like Hydroblast, Hydroblast, Force, Blue Card, Murderous Cut, and Stifle. And I was like, yeah, that resolves. You get the initiative. <laughs> it was just like, yep, right. I would like the initiative, in fact. And it just that play pattern with the cards that we had that supported that play pattern was it was just really perfect at the end and i at the on sunday i i had like 10 or 15 minutes to chat with uh hj gothic who is one of the the all-time best eternal weekend performers i think he's i regrettably concede that he has a, a better eternal weekend career than i do uh but uh, we were joking about that that's that's a thing but he was asking about our list and everything i said he was like not really surprised or impressed he was just like yeah i considered that too yeah i thought about that but then i said two dismembers in the sideboard and he lit up he was like oh okay and like if hj is moved by your technology it's probably great the dope thing about dismember is you're happy to take four to clear like a flipped delver or drc because it's going to deal more than four anyway and then we're a black deck so at some point you just spend three mana and their creature goes to the graveyard and you take nothing. Uh, it's even useful in Merktide Wars because it's a combat trick. Just minus five their Merktide and yours will eat it. And compared to like another Fatal Push or another Shouldred's Edict or some other specific other removal spell you could play, soft removal, Dismember just does the thing. All right, so why don't we kind of shift gears a little bit? We're, we're past the point of preparation now. Let's kind of move to the event itself, you know. What do you want to tell us about your travel on the way there? You know, kind of what happened while you were there? Anything of that nature? You know, what was it like being at that event, traveling to that event? What's most notable? I woke up Thursday morning and I got a shower and then I drove myself 15 minutes to the event site. I know it was uh, 
It was a rough travel. There was a little bit of construction that, that rerouted me briefly on my way downtown. And obviously, I'm I'm riffing here because Eternal Weekend is just in my town and it's the fucking nuts. I'd like to give a shout out to Card Titan and Anurag for everything that went into the event. Card Titan didn't have to do this, but Legacy players really showed up and they gave out, what was it, an extra like 15k in prizes? Yeah, they raised the cap, I think, three times from the originally advertised event size i think it started at like 650 and they bumped it to 850 then to a thousand something and it was just really cool that they were able to they could have just said like no we made a plan but i i know nick costs who owns card titan i know it is important to him to run a good event and i know his team and i know it's important to all of them but also like card titan is a company a business to run they could have just said like we don't want to get a bigger room at the convention center we plan for one thing let's stay the course but it's cool that they really did accommodate the the mad rush on this event that ended up occurring for sure and then Anurag's coverage was just so good also shout out to daniel lee he used to be a writer for the epic storm who was the head judge of the legacy event uh he came up to me at one point he's like brian i know you're playing alters tomorrow can i just review them now and i was like yeah like just making sure everything went well, which also worked out because it turns out I, I brought my backup set of Lion's Eye Diamonds, but I left my backup Lotus Petals at home because they were in Pauper Cycle Storm. So that worked out uh, that the judge was just like, yeah, your proxies are terrific, blah, blah, blah. So uh, that meant a lot that I didn't have to scramble at the last minute. That's cool. Uh, while we're shouting out judges, I want to shout out Abe Corson as well, who has been a member of the vintage community longer than me. Like when I started playing these formats, he was known as like the judge who gets it. It felt like every time I raised my hand to call a judge, Ape was the one who took the call. And the one time he wasn't the judge who took the call, floor judge was, I don't want to say intimidated, but realized they were out of their depth on what I was asking. And they went and got Abe. Shout out to Abe. Uh, he has head judged Eternal Weekends in the past. Uh, also Jeff Foster, Anurag and Jeff ran the the coverage together and that's a, a dynamic duo if i needed to put something out on the internet i would want those two in the lab to do it one of the, my favorite things to do on event trips is eat delicious food so our hotel was in in between the two colleges i suppose in oakland uh pittsburgh and the first night we got in super late and we just like decided to go to some place that was near our hotel so we ate at al Hafe's taqueria which was definitely a drunk kids burrito place that said, the burrito was the size of my head. And I have a pretty big head. I mean, have you seen the size of my ego? It was ginormous. So that was awesome. Like, drunk kid college burritos ended up being amazing. And then Smashed Waffles was across the street from our hotel. And it's like you might just be thinking, like, oh, it's like just like big waffles. Think of, like, two decent-sized waffles that are there to create a sandwich in between, like turkey sausage and cheese and bacon and whatever like it ended up being incredible it sounds really gross but it was perfect ate at a cool tap place called urban tap uh great drinks and then a super fancy restaurant called casba that brian recommended had like octopus and duck and a bunch of really delicious food so i mean i just loved all the food all weekend nice yeah i am local as i i goofed about earlier i hosted jarvis u ari lax pokemoki and tron is bad in my home. So I had a pretty full house full of great people. The first night, everyone wasn't quite in yet. And I had a, a great dinner at Gaucho de Perea, which is a Argentinian steakhouse with Jeremy from Iron Deck and Eliana, Kelly Hokathars. And my girlfriend came out and met a bunch of magic players. That first night at Gaucho, we were eating with, with the people I just listed and some magic players came through. And one of them was Nick Dijon, who's a Philly area vintage player who I've known about 15 years, he came up to the table like, oh my God, 
are you, are you the Brian Koval? And I like threw my hands up and I was like, listen, buddy, I'm at dinner with my friends right now. And the, the three people didn't know we were friends. And Jeremy actually choked on his drink. My girlfriend started like sliding down in her chair. Like, I don't want to be here right now. A really fun moment for those like three seconds that we let that hang in the air before we we laughed and said hello. Uh, that was great. We settled into this great rhythm for the rest of the weekend that I'm very proud that I was able to do. Because if you follow the pod, and I mentioned it already in this episode too, my Star City Pittsburgh experience where I was hosting friends in my house, I was staying up late, I was making sure they got where they needed to go and like busy playing host and not taking care of my tournament needs. This event, I had my four people in my house and every night, the second that the Swiss rounds ended, I was like, okay, everyone in the car, we're driving back to my side of town. We're getting a, a small dinner or like responsible dinner with the five of us. And then we're going to go to bed. And they were all down with that. And I was like, you know, you could go out with friends. Of course, I'll leave a door open if you want to Uber, Uber back. But if you want to be in my car, we're leaving. They were very cool with it. And I got to take all my friends to all my restaurants because I live about 20 minutes outside of downtown where the convention center is and no no other magic players were in the neighborhood it wouldn't make sense for them to be there and just the spots that i go with on dates with my girlfriend and stuff i got to take them to and uh, just enjoy my own town and my own comfort my own home turf and be in bed i think i was in bed at 11 every night got a solid seven and a half eight hours of sleep before you know, showering in my own shower and then driving back out to do it again shout out to that crew for being cool and being responsible and there were no sickos trying to fire a draft at 9 p.m. or anything. All right. So how about the the events themselves? You know, obviously you both did well, but were there any, you know, judge calls, particularly interesting scenarios, you know, things that might either be interesting or helpful for our listeners that you really want to highlight? There was a match. It was my first loss in vintage. I mulliganed and my six card hand is Mox Pearl, Gitaxian Probe, Mindbreak Trap, Ancestral Recall, Flusterstorm, Pithing Needle. And I'm like, well, if this probe hits a blue source, this hand can't lose versus Jewel Shops. It's game three. I'm on the play. I probe my opponent. Their hand is Force of Will, Phyrexian Metamorph, both pieces of the Time Vault combo, Ancient Tomb, two Moxen. And I'm just like, holy, you know, like this hand is so good. So I'm like, well, my deck can't win if a needle is on Time Vault. But I'm like, well, I can't win anyway, so I'm just going to probe and I draw the card. It's not a blue source. I play the needle. They instantly force it. They don't even think about it. And I'm like, okay. So I pass the turn. They run directly into my mind break trap. I'm like, thankfully that worked out. And I draw. It's a saga. I play the saga. And then they go, that was a good one. And it was their second draw of the game. They go, Karn the Great Creator. And I'm like, yeah, that was a good one. And they're like, oh, that's not the card I was talking about, Ancestral Recall. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, like, your first two draws of the game are Karn the Great Creator, Ancestral Recall. And I just got blown out of the water. Like, I was a good sport about it. But uh, I was just like, yeah, I hope you continue to draw like that the rest of the event. <laughs> I mean, that's very close to my top eight match, which we were the backup match on camera. So I don't think everyone saw everything leading up to the point. Like I go back to look at the coverage and when they tuned in, I was basically just kind of dead in the water and floundering. I was also against Jewel Shops in my top eight match. Game one, I kept a turn one Orchard Oath with no protection. That could also turn to Oko. Uh, so the, the things that could happen here is if they take any time setting up, I just trigger Oath and then I'm ahead. If they if their turn one payoff is the one ring, I can't Oath into that because Oath targets. I actually had a sneaky play. Check this out. If my opponent played the one ring and didn't announce the trigger, I was going to float mana with Orchard in the end step and see if they accepted the spirit token. 
because Orchard also targets and they might forget that that targets. And then when we get to my upkeep and they say I have protection, I say, no, you clearly missed the trigger because you have a spirit. Ooh, I like that. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, I had that in the bank. And even if they did do everything correctly on a one ring, I can Oko the one ring and then we play on. And they're not great at getting to jewel on turn one. And if they do get to jewel on turn one, they probably used all their cards to do it. So they draw three. And maybe they get going, but like, sure. I knew I could lose if I passed the turn. I had considered various possibilities. And then on turn one, they go Mishra's Workshop, Vault, Key, Mox Opal. And I'm just dead. Uh, and then we had a great game two and then that I won. And then game three, I have Force Blue card, Force of Vigor green card, Land, Brainstorm, Null Rod is my start. And I'm like, okay, I'm cooking. They go for a turn one, one ring off of Mana Crypt, Mox, Grim Monolith. For exactly four mana, I force a will to one ring, and they pass without a land drop. They don't fight over it, they don't land drop. So I'm like, okay, I think they're out of gas here, and they're definitely out of gas if I force a vigor, they're two mana sources in their upkeep. So I like play out my land, force a vigor, they're two untapped things, so their board is tapped grim monolith, nothing else. And then they draw for turn and go uh Mishra's Workshop Grafdigger's Cage. And I was like, that's annoying, but we got time. And then the next turn they went. Talarian Academy Coveted Jewel. And uh, the Talarian Academy just being involved in that sequence, like that's how that deck beats Null Rod. Like I stuck the Null Rod after they did like their shop cage and I was like, this is still fine, but Academy just was able to PO and everything. So, uh, and he, I talked to my opponent later and I was like, did you sandbag the Academy? And he was like, no, I just drew it. It was super lucky. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. But I mean, that that's just, that's vintage. Uh, I'm not upset about that. As far as judge rulings, I did have two interesting judge situations come up. One of them was on camera in the Legacy Tournament. I was playing against Boros Initiative. It was round nine, uh, game three of round nine. My opponent had a Thalia Heretic Cathar at some point in the game. They picked it up with a Caracas to protect it from some removal spell. Many turns later, they replayed it and they were at two life. I had the initiative. I had a 3-3 Bowmaster that had been uh, forged onto and a 1-1 Orc Army. My hand was Fatal Push and I knew the top of my deck was Misty Rainforest from a Brainstorm. And I was they just passed after playing Thalia and I was like, okay, sweet. And I just drew for turn. I basically like tapped the battlefield with Misty Rainforest and I was like, fetch. And I reached and picked up my deck and I searched for an underground sea. I put underground sea into play and my opponent was like, the underground sea's tapped. And then the table judge was like, well, then the mystery Forest would have been tapped too. And I can't get revolt if I don't have that mystery Forest and I can't get through the Thalia with my creatures. And we had a judge call where because I had brainstormed and I knew that mystery Rainforest was my top card and I knew the card under the mystery Forest, which was long gone. I had already picked up my deck and shuffled it for that the first fetch that we let through uh the judge ruled since we can't fix this completely we're not going to fix it at all and your fetch resolves and i appealed because although that favored me i felt like i created the problem by forgetting about thalia but also my opponent had the opportunity to be like hold up that's tapped you can't fetch so like we both didn't thalia and it was like uh i appealed and the head judge agreed that like we we can't like it both players made a mistake that got us to this point and it could be potentially advantageous to you to get a air quotes free shuffle here when we try to fix everything else that's wrong so just play it as it lies and that that felt a little unfortunate that because i definitely created that problem i forgot about thalia and then i got a ruling in my favor uh but i believe it was correct due to my understanding of policy though i did feel bad about it especially because it's 
on camera and you know how Twitch chat is. Well, I also had a blunder. My final round of Vintage, I was playing for an outside shot at top 16. I'm up a game. We're in game two. My opponent has an Orcish Bowmaster and an Orc that are 1-1 and then has two 3-3 Constructs. So they're not very large. I have two 7-7 Constructs and I have an Urza Saga that just went up to the second chapter and I'm tapped out of mana. And I have Force Blue Card, Force Blue Card, Mental Misstep is my five cards in hand. So I'm feeling pretty good. I'm like, I can either get Grafdigger's Cage and make sure that I don't die to Beseech when they have three cards in hand, or I can get Soul Ring and make sure that I win the combat war. And I'm like, I feel like they have three cards. I have double Force Misstep. I want to make sure that my constructs end up getting the job done. So I get the Soul Ring and I pass the turn. I died that turn. And I was like, what? Their saga ticked up to three. They got Black Lotus. They drew a card for turn. They cast Besiege. I force. They force back. I force. They fluster storm both of my forces and they're like, GG. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me right now. So their three cards plus a random card off the top was the most devastating possible blowout I could have been because the misstep was completely dead. And I was just like, I think I was too greedy. I think the 7-7 Constructs probably would have gotten there. I don't know for sure. Uh, I mean, there's no reason to just not lock down the game, I think, with Grafdigger's Cage. Maybe I'm wrong. I I still could have gotten another Construct on the following turn, so I would have ended up with three Constructs instead of four. Uh, But that blunder, I couldn't stop thinking about for the rest of the night, and I was like, I'm not going to misplay in Legacy. It's not going to happen again. Yeah, that, that one, I mean, obviously the sequence that beat you is whatever low percentage it was this happens all the time on the channel where i point out that like look my opponent just parried off what i was trying to do and they have zero cards left in their hand and one of them at least one of them was drawn at random this turn so fuck me i guess but that's that's part of magic and and yeah if your constructs were that much bigger than theirs you probably do just want to get the lock piece in that spot gotta get those control muscles up yeah you were still trying to bash my other judge situation was the match that i alluded to earlier the one that i lost against initiative i went 3-1 in the tournament and this is the one i got dumpstered game one it was just like a chancellor the annex reveal into turn one archon of Amiria. the game ended without me ever popping the chancellor bubble i just did not put a spell on the stack and we went to the next game. Uh, I won game two. And then game three, we had this slobber knocker where uh, I fended off their early plays. At one point, I force a vigored two chrome moxes when they had no lands in play. And their board was Lotus Petal and they had two cards in hand. I had a beanstalk and a bunch of lands and a, and a removal spell in my hand. And I was like, I'm coasting here. And then they drew for their turn and went Lotus Petal Ancient Tomb Season Dungeoneer, which I could kill but couldn't counter. So they did introduce the initiative. And then I just kind of bricked off for a while where any Bowmaster poking and taking the initiative just ends the game on the spot. Any Merktide ends the game on the spot, but I didn't find one. And then we end up in a spot where I find Bowmaster the turn after they've made the 4-1 Menace out of the dungeon. And they're about to enter Throne of the Dead 3. And they attack me with the 4-1 Menace. I Bowmaster in combat ping it. So now I have Bowmaster Orc Army. And they second main Palace Jailer. And Palace Jailer removes my Orc Army token, not my Bowmaster. I guess they were figuring if I do get a hit on them, they don't want me to have an actual creature back. Like, just get rid of the token. And then they move to their end step, drew for the Monarch. And I said, ping you, make my army again. And they reacted poorly. Like, not like raged, but they were like, oh, like shit like there was a both physical and verbal obviously they had forgotten about this interaction and 
Palace Jailer was a lethal attacker, though, so I still couldn't send my two creatures in. I didn't draw a removal spell, didn't draw a follow-up blocker, so I couldn't poke and take the initiative in Monarch. Then they end up in the Throne of the Dead 3, and then, like, more stuff happens, but I'm still treading water at 1, and they pass their turn without drawing a card for the Monarch. And I say, you're the Monarch. Draw a card, I'll ping you, and make my Orc army. And then I play another turn, and then they play another turn, and I again survive at 1 by just narrow, barely chumping with my orc army. And then they pass the turn without drawing for the monarch again. And then I call a judge because the monarch has been in play for three turns. It was, oh shit, forget, forget, were the three monarch triggers. And a, an investigation was conducted and I explained the board state and that what I just said, like they clearly forgot about this interaction with Bowmaster and didn't like it. And then they just forgot to draw a card. They never forgot to advance in the initiative dungeon they never forgot a chance with the annex for a spike they didn't forget any other triggers in the game except those two monarchs in that spot and then the judge investigated my opponent away from the table as well and the judge's ruling was while this timing of these triggers is suspicious i don't think anyone is below board here and he gave me the option to put the monarch trigger on the stack and disqualifying someone for cheating is tough to do as a judge and maybe my opponent really was just flustered and actually forgetting their monarch and you know whatever and like i said i do trust the judge who conducted the investigation in matters of judgely business but it was definitely like a weird spot to make exactly that mistake twice. Like I would have lost anyway, because the result of me reminding them about their trigger and then the judge ruling, you can put the trigger on the sack now, still resulted in the game state that should have occurred if my opponent was just 100% on it. Uh, so I did lose fair and square, but it felt slimy in between, which that, that's just uh, a pretty annoying spot that I'm going to have my eye on that person if I see them around again. So I've told two bad beat stories so far. I'm going to share a slightly different kind of story here. And I say slightly because it's still a little bit of a bad beat, which makes it fun. It's match number two. I'm game three on the play versus cradle control. I've mulliganed. I have a turn one thought sees you into 16 one one red goblin tokens. I left them with three lands and a noble hierarch as their mulligan to five plus discard their orcish bowmaster so they're on three lands hierarch they draw for turn and it's once upon a time and they just immediately put it to the table from the top of their deck they go i'll look and they get the biggest smile on their face they reveal plague engineer and i'm like oh okay they fetch they play a hierarch they pass i swing in for 16 they fetch they play the plague engineer so they're at two life and at one point over the next few turns they went to go thought seize me and then realized that they're at two and stopped they didn't cast it but they like tapped a black man i'm like okay they have thought seize and my next two draws off the top were cabal ritual i have threshold by the way and burning wish i i however only have one land they played a needle and they named mox opal and i'm just like Phew. they didn't name misty i have four misties in my deck my next draw is misty rainforest i fetch i get burning wish burning wish for tendrils uh, and i pass and i'm like oh i need to draw a dark ritual here lying because i have cabal ritual in hand in case they like draw endurance or something or can green sun for endurance they attack they put me to two life and then i go cabal ritual threshold you tendrils of agony and they're like what uh so it was like just like an insane back and forth match uh that was really really good that rules yeah there's so many details like little look behind the curtain here we have another like three pages of show notes from like all our individual matches of the the tournament and then a post-mortem about our decks and stuff and we're 56 minutes into this podcast uh, we're not going to do all that uh, i just want to say many of my opponent most of my opponents were awesome and uh, i had a lot of really good games a lot of really cool stuff i had an incredible 
slobber knocker oath mirror with Hank Zhang, uh, who is a, a person I respect. He's got some EW top eights and I've known him around around the region for many years. Uh, if you want all the details, I did a video tournament report that is like an hour and a half long on my channel. So that's out there if you want the round by round. But yeah, I just played against a lot of really nice people and even people who were just like getting their asses kicked or like smiling and handshakes after the match. And uh, nobody, uh, other than like that one Monarch situation, uh, nobody made me feel bad as a human in, in a, a human experience. Like I lost some important matches and that feels bad, but the people did not make it worse for me. So a uh, great, great community, great outing. I played 21 rounds of mag magic and only had one slightly concerning interaction and that's a pretty high hit rate so i want to point out brian because i think this is interesting we didn't go through our matches but you faced boris initiative three times my plan was to dodge the entire weekend and i did i didn't face initiative once i didn't face Moonstompy once meanwhile you were eating up boris initiative for breakfast uh so i thought that was kind of interesting because i didn't even see initiative near me not like i didn't face it i also never sat near it so all weekend i was like did people even show up with boros initiative i'm not so sure but looking at your match pairings i mean there's obviously some there yeah and the boros humans is also boros initiative so i played against it four times in the swiss and i also played against boros painter twice these boros ancient tomb decks were out in force and uh, I was aware of that. Like I went into a lot of detail earlier about how much thought we put into the Boros Initiative matchup. I actually thought the Boros Painter being the default at this tournament was really interesting because Rakdos Painter with Chaos Defiler has been the buzz for all these months where it's like, get ready for Eternal Weekend. Painter is going to have Chaos Defiler. You got to be ready for that. But guess what? They have fourth Aerolingus instead. And that's a hell of a juke out of Painter when you're trying to both stop their Fable of the Mirror Breakers and not get Blood Mooned and stop their Painter combo and beat their Urza Saga, and then they can just legacy you at some point. Uh, that was every Painter deck that I played against and every Painter deck that I could see from my seat was Boros, and someone got the word out about that one just in time for this event. Yeah, and blowing my mind, uh, Jack Kitchen's Painter list was playing two copies of Enlightened Tutor, which is a card that I have shat on for years as just borderline being unplayable in the legacy format but scoreboard like here it is in an ew top eight let's shoot straight into our post event wrap up this event this uh episode is going to run slightly long anyway really the only note that i have after this from the decks that i played is i still like the position of oath one thing that i was considering was the second null rod in the sideboard i know justin Gennari has practiced with that in the past and got off it. I, I also want to point out that you're already playing two Null Rods because you could tinker for a Null Rod, which isn't sexy, but it gets it done in the matchup where, where it needs to get it done. So just you know, be aware of that line. Uh, and in my Legacy deck, we kind of debated the night before the tournament whether we were going to play two Pernicious Deeds or a Deed and an Energy Flux. And we ended up on the Energy Flux because Energy Flux is better in our worst matchups. Deed is better across a variety of matchups while also having text in those bad matchups that we were worried about flux with. I would just play two deeds if I ran the event back tomorrow. That's the only thing I'd change about my list. 
I just want to say thank you to everyone that came up and said like, hey, I love your content or support or whatever. I don't go to as many events as Brian and Phil, but just grinding out leagues for content when you're home, sometimes you get lost in the amount of people that watch your videos. And it meant a lot to me while I was at Eternal Weekend. So thank you to everyone. And a special thank you to Jordan Kareem who hooked me up with the stitched Thoughtseize playmat. They announced the VIP playmats after I had registered. And I saw that Thoughtseize playmat and knew that I wanted it. And it ended up being a small little trophy for myself for the weekend and he made that happen considering they weren't selling these stitch thoughts these playmats so really appreciate that one quick notice when i was playing vintage all around me throughout the entire day people were just bemoaning they were like urza saga needs to be restricted urza saga needs to be restricted uh because a lot of the format feels like saga versus bizarre with the outlier being oath but i think it actually adds a lot to the format and i'd be a little bit disappointed if it was restricted but ultimately i wouldn't be surprised but i think it's the perfect power level for vintage but I'm open to being wrong. I think that Urza Saga is a design masterpiece that has enriched every format it's legal in. Full stop. Uh, it's legal in modern and back, and I think it's great in all of them, plus EDH. Uh, it, I love Urza Saga. Absolute fucking masterpiece. One uh, other note that I have is that people were like, well, why did Bryant do well and other Storm players didn't? Well, I think a big part of that is that you have Beseech the Mirror for all of the non-blue matchups, and then in blue matchups, I have Galvanic Relay. When you look at some of the bug saga lists that did well, they lost to Delver. People in the Storm Discord posting their tournament breakdowns, and there was a bunch of 1-2 to Grixis Delver, 1-2 to Rug Delver. That never happens when you run Galvanic Relay in your deck. I want to get paired against Delver. I'm not going to list the chart that I put in here, but I'm 88.8% versus Grixis Delver and 80 0.95% against Rug. So play Galvanic Relay, cover your blue matchups, use Beseech to beat everything else. It's simple. Just play the good cards. Yep. One thing that I want to touch on on the end, because I, I saw a joke about it online, uh, but I could see how people would think it was actually uh, concerning. Bryant top aided with Storm after us on the pod have been saying for weeks, don't bother with Storm hate for paper events. While Bryant did win or go deep in the tournament with Storm. I played blue and I did not play any Storm hate and I did not pair in a Storm and I'm glad I had no Storm hate. So it's just like, I don't think anyone's actually salty, not anyone uh, who actually understands how anything works, but I, I just want to cover Brian here in case anyone thinks he's a grifter because I was co-signing that advice and I still co-sign it now. Copy my list, play it, you'll do great. It has zero dedicated storm hate. Yeah, I had a couple people come up to me and be like, hey, Brian, I ignored the podcast. I ran my break trap. It was a mistake. I never faced storm or even combo. And when you look at the event breakdown, I'd be surprised if storm or any combo deck at all was above two to three percent. It's just such a small portion of the field and you have slots that could go to other matchups that you actually lost against. Yep. And I think it is a reasonable reward for being the person face down grinding storm to the point where you're confident playing it for 14 rounds of magic. You should get a field that's soft to it because no one else is willing to do that. I, like that is a layer of metagaming uh, that I think is totally fair play. Uh, congrats, uh, congrats on your top eight with your deck. Uh, I top eighted an SCG legacy event last year with Shark still, and it felt so fucking good to just do it my way the sinatra just blaring through my head and uh you top eight at a bigger event within a deck 
with a deck that's even more your brand than Shark still is mine. So congrats for Thank that. Thank you. You as well for your vintage top eight. Uh, I had a bunch of people asking me like, Brent, what's next? And I was like, I don't know, getting home. And they were like, no, like what events are you going to next? And I had to look it up. Apparently there's an SCG Hartford coming up. That's a legacy 1K. I don't know if I'm going to drive four hours to play in a 1K. That seems a little sketchy to me. Uh, SCG King of Prussia hasn't announced the formats yet, but it's probably legacy based on the regional, you know, what they usually do there. And that's in the beginning of March. So everyone uh, maybe start booking that time out now. I know that SEG hasn't announced it, but it's likely going to be legacy and we want to show up like we did for Eternal Weekend. Yep. I will be at that event and I've got a CEDH event, the boil coming up. Magic Con Chicago. Phil and I will have a creator booth again. Uh, we, we claimed Friday morning, right? We have requested that. Okay. All right, sure. I did something for MagicCon Chicago that I have not done before. I've been keeping my event calendar clear at all these MagicCons because I just want to shake hands, kiss babies, meet people. But I joined every Legacy event at MagicCon Chicago. There's some cool ones. There's one for a piece of original magic art to be determined. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's like the premier Legacy event. And then there's a bunch of other little ones and... I'm in all of them. I will be among my people, not just walking around the command zone in Chicago. So I'm, I'm still figuring out the formula on how to be a creator at these things. And I'm looking forward to, to gaming in the sweaty legacy trenches. So I'll see you there. And if you weren't coming, come battle me. <laughs>